0: Have you had an experience of the world directly, so you were there at an event, and then you also happen to see a media account of that event that seems different than your direct experience? Which one do you trust more?
1: I I mean, in that scenario, I would trust myself more, only because I was there and I physically saw and heard. Everything that was going on, as opposed to someone else telling me actually what happened. I mean, I, I equate it similar to an eyewitness account of something happening, like when you investigate a crime scene, it's all to do with the, the witnesses' account. You know, that, and that's in my mind, that's usually what makes or breaks the case. Sort of
0: thing. But aren't witnesses largely unreliable? listening to culture is ordinary a podcast about media and cultural studies of the readings that we did one of the ones from roland Bout, which has always fascinated me not simply for its context of uh, explanation but by by virtue of its title was the idea of operation margarine operation margarine is a very odd name for a, an article an academic article When we think about Operation Margarine, what Roland Barth asked us to do was imagine, why is it that we accept margarine as a substitute for butter if margarine isn't as good as butter? Is it only because mediation has been good at telling us that it's not going to be perfect, but as long as you pretend that it's good enough, then we'll all be fine? Is that consistent with other forms of media in your life? that the media never really gives you the truth. It gives you close enough, and that's what you accept as your own interaction with the rest of the world.
2: I would also agree and, like, believe myself at first, but looking at, like, other people's opinion, like, we might be able to get, like, different interpretation of, like, a similar event or different perspective of an event that we may not think of and probably change our perspective as well in, like, some way or the other. Have
0: any of you had an actual experience like that where you were someplace and then you saw a media report of it? Of course, if something big happens, you're going to look for it in the media afterwards and you're going to figure out what happened and what what people are saying about it. Has that ever happened to you that you were someplace that happened to end up in uh, some kind of media form?
3: Like I know for me, I'm from a small town where logging is a main resource in our town, but there's also a big um, anti-forestry movement in that town. So I know um, forestry protests and, like, protests about not so much old-growth logging like there is now, but, like, just logging in general were a very popular thing in that town. So it was one of those things where, like, I I don't I don't really have a side, honestly, with that opinion, but it's, like, one of those things where I, I remember going to these type of protests, because, honestly, it was a small town. It's just what you did when you were in high school, because what else are you going to do on a Thursday night or whatever? Um, and it was just one of those things where, like, you would see the outlets being like, oh, look at all these people that, like, hate forestry, hate this, hate this, when also if you, a lot of people from both sides would go to these protests to speak at them because a lot of, like, foresters would come to these protests and be like, here, let me explain to you, like the good side of why we do this let me explain to you why we cut down the trees and why you like we don't get it like we want to also know why you think it's a bad thing and then all of a sudden news outlets are running as if these foresters have turned their backs on the industry and all of a sudden they're pro or they're like anti-forestry even though they're still foresters there'd be a lot of weird like rumors and gossip about that but even to the point where news outlets like smaller news outlets in these small towns would running as just as if these loggers have turned their backs on their industry.
0: So which one is more real, the rumor or gossip, because it's an interpretation that people pass around amongst themselves, or the report you heard on the radio or read in the newspaper later in the week?
3: Like, you would want to believe the newspaper and the radio station because they they put work into it. They're getting paid to tell us the truth, so you would expect them to tell us the truth. But at the same time, they only know so much, right? When they get those like eyewitness people who are at the protests and they're maybe anti-forestry, they might say, "Oh yeah, look at these people turn their backs on it," and that's what the these news outlets know about, and that's the only that's the truth that they think is happening. Um, I had an experience um with the uh, Black Lives Matter. Um, protests that were happening um, I went to both the one in the Nanaimo and in Victoria and what I realized the difference was from my experience and the media outlets was a lot of the media was glorifying the people who organized it which I love like they de- definitely deserve props but I feel like the media should have covered more of the issue and what we're fighting for rather than the people who are doing it
0: That's an interesting balance because the idea there is that mediation always has a structure and that structure tends to favor things that are structural, organizational.
4: Yeah, I have an experience like uh, when I read news uh, like uh, in Canada and when I read news in China, I read uh, uh, totally different news. The content is totally different. so. Um, sometimes even I saw the news. I can't tell which, which is real, like uh, because uh, we I can't sure I'm not sure uh, the media want us to read what kind of things, and so so I can't believe like uh, what we see and what we read.
0: But in the end, you have to rely on somebody else's account of things in order to make sense of stuff you didn't experience firsthand. And even if you did experience it firsthand, sometimes you have to rely on somebody else to tell you about some stuff that you didn't really know how to make sense of at the time. So, Hanchen, in your case, when you read news that comes out of China and you read news that comes out of Canada, what happens um, when you have to decide whether you're being told what is good for the country that is telling you the news versus what's good for you as a person who's receiving it? Is it hard for you to receive the news?
4: uh not not really hard but like i i usually avoid to read the news about like the country relationship because um when i'm reading china um they always tell us uh this thing is good but maybe uh, i saw the news out of china they they will say all those things are bad for the people
0: So all forms of media have a perspective that is presented in a particular kind of way, and the more removed you are from the direct experience, the more you have to rely on somebody else's account. So you have to rely on a media-based account. Have you ever changed your vision of your memories because of an official record that is different from your own? Perhaps it's that you read the lyrics to a song that you'd been singing in your head one way forever, and then all of a sudden you discovered you're a fool and you've been singing it wrong, but you like your way better than the way that it's actually written?
2: that has happened to me constantly when I think like I'm singing the right lyrics, but like in reality, like it's like totally different thing.
5: Yeah. For me, there's definitely been uh, a few times where, uh, the media, for example, has changed my outlook on something. Um, the first one that comes to mind would have to be the, the Olympic games. So for years, obviously growing up as a sports fan, um, I love the Olympics, love watching them, always wished I could go. But then as I grow older, you learn that they're actually not very good for the economy and that they have, often have a lot of repercussions for the city that hosts them, usually putting them into millions of dollars of debt and that sort of thing. So it is interesting how like, the media in that sense took something that I once loved and kind of put a negative connotation on it and made me think more um, like, realistically about it rather than just like the event that it was
0: listening to culture is ordinary okay how about this i watched the raptors game last night and i was again disappointed but you know that happens some seasons but the thing that i was the most disappointed by was that each team was wearing yet another new uniform and the yet another new uniform part was really quite cynical in a way it was the now you need to buy a fifth uniform this season, as opposed to being able to follow along and saying, I'm a fan of this sports team. I enjoy this sports team. You might think about this if you're not a sports fan in relationship to music. If you look at uh, K-pop stars right now, you can buy the one album that has all the songs, but if you're really a fan, you're going to buy all five versions, or you're going to have the preferred version. Or if you are a Pokemon player, you're going to buy not the Black or the white, you're going to buy both because then that gets you the one special card that's only in one version and the other one. So you can get the one special card that's in the rest, even though when I ever always ask this question, what's the difference between the two? It's only that one card. Why is it that we then get this demand to say that we're going to be settling for something as opposed to saying, here's what we want and here's what we're getting. And we understand the limitations of those things.
5: Yeah, I think that the, uh, the media gives always gives us a thought or often gives us a thought that there's always something better than what we have. And obviously human nature is to want what we don't have. So for the Pokemon example with the one different card or one different Pokemon in the two different games, it's in our human nature and because of the media that we say that we think, Oh, like I got to buy the other game so I can have that in case someone else has it. I want to be like them and have that same Pokemon. And I don't want to miss out on the chance of having it. And I think um, just the media itself, just through promotion and advertising and everything, does a good job of making us feel as though we need that as opposed to just want it.
2: uh thinking of this this reminds me of the magic bullet theory where we think of the information that we're getting from media as a bullet which basically penetrates our head and like alters our thinking so about the pokemon cards like how a same card which will only have like a slight difference can hold like different value like the first edition cards or like newer ones it is basically the same but like just one slight difference can make a huge difference and like people want what's rare i guess
3: yeah like i know for me i i was never really into pokemon but i had a friend who was really into like magic the gathering which from my understanding you could actually like play a game with that where like pokemon has more collectibles but i would see him spend like a hundred dollars on one card and i'd be like why? Like I don't understand why he would spend all this money on it, and then she he would have to explain to me like all these different things. I'm just like I don't get it. I like it just all these different like type of aspects that like when he explained to me like as someone who never even played Magic Gathering, it doesn't make sense. But like he would have his other friend that does play Magic Gathering, and he'd be like, "Oh my gosh, you have that card! Like it's so cool." So I think there's also sort of this like hype. This, I guess behind like getting these special cards these like spending that hundred bucks, that 30 bucks, that two dollars on a certain card that you then get hyped up by like these people in your community where someone who's not a part of that community is just like what? I I, I don't get it
4: at all. This reminds me because of like also like buying phones like sometimes when people are bu- buying like the uh, version that it's like more updated or more is like you know it's doing the same job, but at the same time, you want it with the extra like uh, quality or with extra uh, function because it's just like the media also or like the ads or people around you are showing you that okay you need this extra like uh, thing in your life like you need your camera to be better you need your phone to have extra things. so this whole like I guess yeah remind me of it.
5: That actually, the whole Pokemon conversation um, makes me think of the recent uh, influx of non fungible tokens and how those are spreading through the media today. So, pretty much, what, a, what are non fungible tokens? Yeah, so pretty much, what that is, it's um, like a unique digital item. It can be like art, audio, a GIF, a video, that they only make a select number of, and that you can trade and purchase or sell online. And so one that's been um, going through the sports world recently uh, is called NBA Top Shot. And so pretty much what they are is uh, you open packs as though you would a pack of Pokemon cards. And inside each pack, there's gifts of, um, of NBA players in certain plays within their career. And there's only a select number of them that you can get and that are made in the world. So once you open the pack, people are selling these like little gifts of an NBA player doing a highlight for thousands of dollars. Like the top one sold for over $200,000, and all it is is a little gif of LeBron dunking to get the basketball. Which keep in mind is the same highlight that I could go and watch on YouTube anytime I want. It's just the fact that it's in a little gif and that they opened it from a pack and the exclusivity of it that makes it seem like so, uh, like makes it people want it that much more.
6: This um, reminds me of like during quarantine, there was this, um, like on TikTok, it was trending that people would buy these things called mini brands. So it's like brands, it's like, like, it's like the Kinder Egg, you don't like what's in it. So it'll be like, let's say like a Heinz ketchup bottle or like mayonnaise or like anything like that. It was like hidden in an egg and you didn't know what it was, but people would start collecting it. And people just kept on buying it and they just kept on trending. And there were like so many news articles about it and stuff. And there was like, you couldn't do physically anything with it. It was just like a small mini brand or something. And people just thought it was so cute. So they just kept on buying it. And yeah, it just made no sense at all.
0: That goes back to Operation Margarine. When we go back to the idea of Operation Margarine, part of the thing that it is is that there is perhaps a perceived need or perhaps a perceived goal, but we want to create an opportunity to produce something to fulfill that goal. But why don't we find a way to make it as limited or as low low stakes as possible? So if you are clever about creating value in the ephemeral sense, so value that people believe something is worth something, Or maybe let's go back a step. Is value always just in your head or is value a real, tangible thing? You are listening to Culture is Ordinary. The
7: keychain from a galaxy far, far away. When I thought about which object I want to talk about for my nostalgic impulse, I immediately thought about all the items I brought with me to Canada that are reminding me of something. I quickly noticed every object generally has its own history irreversibly connected to someone's story. So, then I thought more carefully about the things I brought with me solely for the purpose of reminding me, making me feel nostalgic, or I should rather say for making me feel connected to home and to a personal safe place while I am in the unknown. I have to admit, I brought many small objects dear to me to accompany me during my semester abroad. I brought all kinds of things, be it some photos of my family and me, Letters from my partner, a notebook from her or even jewellery she made from my grandmother's and grandfather's belongings who both passed away last year and who I miss dearly. Alongside, I brought objects which aren't as meaningful but still hold beautiful memories, such as a certain pair of socks or the clothes I chose to bring in general. Evocative objects are everywhere. However, the one object I want to share with you in more detail I hold especially dear. It was a gift from my partner, which he crafted for me for my birthday last November. It's a keychain. The most common thing in the world, you could say. Yet, one used every day. Of course, it's not just any keychain. To me, it means a lot. Before you can understand how I feel about it, I have to describe it to you. Naturally, it would be much easier to show you a picture of it, but I will try my best to visualize it for you. First thing, and easiest to grasp, it's a toy, it's a lego figure. My partner drills a hole in it and glued its bricks so it won't fall apart. Moreover, it's a figure designed after a Star Wars character, or multiple characters to be exact, as it's a clone. But it's also not any clone, because it has a special paint job. The helmet it wears has some orange decoration and the body some blue. In order to know why this is important, we will have to take a step back and understand its origin. The figure is shown in the last episodes of an animated Star Wars TV series. The clones paint the armor in honor of a friend who stood for her beliefs but had to leave where she belonged her entire life because of her integrity. When they eventually meet again, the clones decide to show their respect for their old friend by applying the decorations to their armor. When I saw the scenes for the first time, I was deeply moved by the relationship and friendship of the characters I followed since I was a little child. And that's why I feel nostalgic about the look of the figure, precisely because I'm such a great Star Wars fan and always have been. But because it's a clone, it also reminds me of something that doesn't appear obvious at first glance. It reminds me of individuality and to never judge a book by its cover. I also feel nostalgic because of the simple fact it's a lego figure, and it takes me back to vivid childhood memories of my best friend and me playing with lego all the time. To me, this is not about the warrior or anything like it. To be honest, I despise violence in any form. No, to me the this chain symbolizes something else. It's a symbol for friendship, loyalty and integrity and it's a reminder to be there for one another even when physically apart. But then it means even more to me. Because my partner transformed it into a keychain with her own hands and went through the struggle of obtaining this rare figure just because she knew how I will feel about it and how happy I will be. And because she accepts me the way I am, this keychain represents her acceptance and understanding to me. And it makes me understand the intimacy we share between one another. Since the day she gifted the keychain to me, a part of her lives in an object that seems superficial from the outside, but doesn't feel superficial to me. The keychain from a galaxy far, far away makes me feel connected to where I feel home. And it makes me feel grateful for being so fortunate to have my partner besides me at all times. Further is the tactility of the figure, calming me down because I'm always able to feel it even when I cannot look at it. Because of all of the above, the keychain is a lucky charm to me, a Glücksbringer, an object which brings fortune. It reminds me of not forgetting the fun of my childhood, to stand by my friends and to stay optimistic at all times because I know I'm never alone. It reminds me of happiness. When I will eventually return back home, the keychain I brought will have grown with me and it will most certainly remind me of the time I went to Vancouver Island in 2021 and of all the things I got to know and learned, of all the people I met and the experiences I made. As with all the other objects I brought, there will be added another layer of meaning to its aura of nostalgia.
0: You are listening to Culture is Ordinary. You are describing the idea that you are willing to pay a certain amount of money for something that you think has value, but you didn't really yet describe although benjamin is intimating it and and megan is as well you didn't really describe uh, a distinction between utility value and social value so something i can do something with relative to something that gives me status
6: um could it be both like it could have value to you but like to another person it could have no value at all so say if I collect something, that specific thing has value to me, but if someone from the outside looks at it and think, oh, you're collecting something that doesn't make sense to them, it wouldn't have as much as value as it does to me.
0: That's definitely possible. But it's also really important to think about the idea of value conflicts. What happens if it has value to me and something has value to somebody else, but the thing that has value to me has no value to somebody else? Can it be reasonable to say that what is valuable to me should also be valuable to you, and that we have to force a sense of shared value. And is that what media does? Create that sense of shared value so that everything else has a benchmark difference from, this is what's actually collectively valuable, and everything that goes in one direction is negative, no value, and everything that goes in the other direction is positive, lots of value. If you go back to the Pokemon card example, it's just all paper. At the end of the day, it's all paper. The Spider-Man rarity comic books, all paper. Why is any of that valuable if not only outside of its material value
3: well i think in like that like situation it's the media telling you that like that limited edition uh, pokemon card that limit that um first edition spider-man comic is valuable because i don't know how else someone can just like look at that and see that pokemon card and think that's valuable that's $1,000 right there. It's sort of the media telling you, or at least a group of people, all a part of this fandom or this culture, this like Pokemon group saying, I want that card, I'll give you a thousand bucks for it um no i'll give you a hundred i'll give you a hundred thousand bucks for it or something like that it's a lot of money but um, um it's just like i think it's the media telling you that these pokemon cards are worth it to spend this much money on it but also people coming together and saying this is how much money i will get i'll spend to get this pokemon card because the media is also telling me that i want this card and that this card rare and that this card means a lot
0: so keep that idea in mind that that dynamic between An outside influence giving us information and the internal reproduction of that information into something.
1: Yeah, I was just wondering regarding that fact. I wonder if something is only worth as much as what people are willing to pay for it. So it's like, I think it's at the end of the day, it still comes down to us. Like if no one wants to buy something, then it would be worth nothing. But it's because suddenly now something has value to it. It's now who, who wants to pay
0: more for it. Well, when you look at that relative to what you can find as the rampant escalation of real estate markets, perhaps that is true, that a house is only worth as much as somebody's willing to pay for it. And that's why it's called market value as opposed to material value. And at the same time, is there a point at which a house gets to be well beyond what it could ever reasonably be worth, aside from the fact that people really think it's a good idea? Can a house always only ever be an idea and that determines the price or is a house ever only going to be worth the material value that it has? If your house is a crappy house in a crappy neighborhood, but in a good city, does that automatically make it
5: more valuable? That's actually an interesting point. Um, Just recently I was reading on the real estate market in Victoria and there was a house, I think it was just over a thousand square feet, uh, Pretty sure it was built 50 years ago, pretty dilapidated. And it sold for almost a million dollars, sold for $900,000. And the couple that bought it said, yeah, we don't actually want the house, we just want to tear down the house and have the property for that amount of money. So I think, like you said, even though it's a pretty bad house and in a less than ideal neighborhood, but it's close to a big city, I think that's what gives it value, not actually the house itself.
1: Yeah, and an in- interesting thing, I had a conversation with uh, some people who, who knew a situation where someone was trying to buy a house and what they realized was, I mean, it might have a certain mar- market value, but sometimes you have to put in a bid that's much higher than the actual value of the house because what people are doing now is, say, a house is... Going for, let's say, 500,000 people are bidding seven, eight hundred thousand for the house. So, you might, for a five hundred thousand dollar house, you might have to go close to a million just to get the house, which I thought was extraordinary when I heard that.
0: It is entirely an extraordinary phenomena. And I think that phenomena is magnified in a way, if we go back to what Lauren was talking about before, of the dual belief between value created externally, so this is what the market looks like. So if we think about the notion of the market, and Benjamin is a business major, a number of you are engaged in business studies in various ways. When you think about the notion of the market, the idea of the market is a nebulous notion. There's no actual market. There's no building you walk into, and here are the rules of that building. There are different conditions of social as well as uh, transactional experience that occur. So if we think about the idea of the market creating a particular sort of value, somebody has to live that value out. And buyers have to say, I'm going to pay the money. I'm going to engage in the cultural practice of this. Or they have to embody the belief as action on the ground. So when Lauren talked about it before, the only reason that somebody says, okay, here's all of the reasons that this is valuable, well, that can come externally. But the only way that it actually has any teeth is if you internalize that belief. And then you live it out. So that is the idea that ideology... And ideology is an important concept in cultural studies, but the idea of ideology as a belief system its not singularly something that is imposed upon you, but is something that is introduced to you, to which you often can become indoctrinated. But then it only is useful if it is reproduced by you. And you start to think about it as, this is the way things are. Not, this is the way I believe things should be. You don't always have to agree with them. But when you reproduce them and say, I will pay that because I have to if I want to get a house, then all of a sudden you're reproducing the ideology. So is a Pokemon card only worth as much as the reproduced belief that it's worth more? Or is it worth that much because it's actually rare? It's actually worth something because of its rarity. Or put differently, is everything that you find that is rare worth something? You're listening to Culture is Ordinary, a podcast about media and cultural studies. Today's episode was brought to you by David, Benjamin,
6: and Tim, Megan, Lauren, and Alicia, Chloe,
0: Leonard, and me, Ravindra Mohabir. Bye for now.